My friends, last week we considered the promise of the gospel that came by way of the prophet Joel through the mouth of Peter to the Jews who were assembled in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And we saw the amazing grace of the gospel that to these people who had participated in the crucifixion of Christ, Peter says to them in Acts 2 and verse 39, For the promise is for you. And remember I told you at that time that in the original language of Scripture it says, For you the promise is. Because the Peter, the author there, uh, would emphasize that even to these people, who were the very last ones to deserve it, a promise was made. For you, the promise is made. For you, the promise stands. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Make a public profession by baptism of your faith in Christ. And your sins will be forgiven. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In a word, what Joel had said earlier, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Well, my friends, at that time, I had emphasized, for the promise is for you. But you'll notice that the text continues, for it says, for the promise is for you and your children. And those are our text words then this evening. And your children. That's the focus of the sermon. Because it's the amazing grace of the gospel is visible already. That the promise is for you, for those who had crucified the Lord of glory. But now Peter goes on to put in these words, and your children. The promise is for you and your children. Is that just a throwaway line? Is that just Peter speaking as, as Jewish people tend to speak? What is the significance of those words? You know that in our own Reformed churches, we treasure those words, right? As an indication that God also includes children, the infants and the older children, in his covenant promises. And in his covenant of grace, he includes the children. Uh, you know, and I put that on the uh, outline there, our catechism says, should infants also be baptized? And in the very first line it says, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. Right? And, and that is the basis then for the fact that we apply the sign of the covenant. If they are included in the covenant, then they should receive the sign of the covenant, which is, of course, under the old covenant of circumcision and in the new covenant of baptism. So we look at these words quite differently than so many evangelical and Bible and Baptist-minded churches would look at them. We see these words as very significant. And, and, and based on these words, we have a whole practice in our Reformed churches that uh, really is a mystery to many people. Why we would, we would give baptism to an infant who has no ability to give us any evidence of the repentance that Peter had spoken about. Repent and be baptized. So I'd like to consider this with you then, this, this, these words, and to your children. The first thing I'd like to consider then is the audience. Now, this may not seem to be so important, but actually it's critically important. You'll notice in Acts 2 and verse 11, after listing all the different places where these people come from, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, and so on, then in verse 11, he finishes that list. He says, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. 
sorry, I missed that. It's in verse 10, not verse 11. Verse 10, it says, in, uh, if beginning of verse 10, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. And then notice it says, both Jews and proselytes. So the audience to which Peter is speaking are Jewish people. Now, they were not necessarily Palestinian Jews. In other words, Jews who grew up in Jerusalem and in Palestine. But they were Jewish people who had grown up in whatever area. And again, you see the, 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 the large list of places where they had come from. But these were Jewish people. They were adherents to the Jewish religion. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were Jewish people, ethnic Jews, but also proselytes, people who were not ethnic Jews, but who had converted to the Jewish religion. Now that's important, my friends, because these people then, we can assume that would have, they would have been steeped in that religion. That was their religion. They would have known the Old Testament. They would have known its way of speaking, its forms of speech, its language. They would have known the rituals and the, and the, the whole ceremonial worship of the Old Testament. These were things that were to them uh, as their, their DNA. It was in their blood. Now, when Peter stands up and he begins to say, listen, what's happening before you today, uh, Jewish people, no matter where you may come from, this is the new covenant that God has now begun by pouring out his spirit upon all these Jewish people. Now, these Jewish people would have understood that. They would have understood that there was a time coming when the Messiah was going to come, when he was going to set up his kingdom on this earth, and when he was going to make a new covenant with the people of God. All those things were matters of prophecy. So these things were understood by these people. And the reason I spend time on this this evening, my friends, is because we, if we're going to understand these texts, have to put ourselves into their shoes. We have to listen to these texts as they would have heard them, as they would have understood them. Right? That's a fundamental point of, and I think you've heard this word before, hermeneutics, right? The interpretation of Scripture, that we have to hear the text both as the, the original author would have intended his audience to have heard it. So, this is important then that we understand who Peter is speaking to. But now we come then to this next question. So Peter has spoken to these people in their distress. They cry out to Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, this is just language, my friends, that is often repeated in the book of Acts, that they are to repent, that is to turn away from their sins. And included in that whole idea of repentance is faith, that they're to turn to Jesus Christ and to put their trust in him. And then they are to have a, and they are to make a, a public display of that, right? That God is going to seal to them his, this promise that Peter has made to them, and, and, and they are going to, you might say, uh, show that they embrace that promise, that they accept that promise by being baptized. Now, the question then would have arisen in the minds of these people, no doubt, right? That as, as Peter has preached to them that this promise is for you, now that, that in itself would have been gospel to them, right? Good news, amazing grace from God. But then Peter continues and he says, and for your children. Now, the typical understanding of this verse is that all those who were gathered there, if they repented of their sin and if they believed in Jesus Christ, then 
they would be baptized and they would receive the forgiveness of sins. And God would seal to them in baptism that their sins really were forgiven. As surely as the water cleansed them, so surely were all their sins forgiven. Now, this would apply to the adults there, and it would apply to any children there as well. Whether these children were teenagers, whether they were younger, but with whatever capacity that they had to understand what Peter was saying, Peter is certainly making this invitation that to them as well, this gospel applies. That if you repent of your sins, your sins will be forgiven for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is the typical way, right, that this promise would have been understood or is explained today in many churches. And we have no issue with that explanation insofar as it goes. Peter makes no promise. God makes no promise to anyone apart from repentance and faith in Christ. There is no uh, some kind of absolute promise that God is just going to save people uh, who hear it, right? No, there needs to be repentance. God saves repentant sinners and believing sinners. And such ones are to be baptized. With that, certainly we would agree. In fact, we would insist upon it. It needs to be said. That, that, that's the good news of the gospel, but it's also the, uh, the offense of the gospel, isn't it? That God makes no promise to anyone who refuses to repent and to become a disciple of Jesus. But the question no doubt would have come up in the minds of those, what about the infant children? Right? What about the children who are, who are unable to understand any of this? Now, now, why would that have even been a question at the time? And again, I put this on the outline. What was the case previously? And I just explained to you, right, that these people were Jewish people who had been trained in all the theology of the Old Covenant. They had been trained to think of the family as a single unit. <clears throat> And this is the title of the sermon, The Household Principle. Some people want to call it the genealogical principle. And the idea there is that the family is seen as a unit. So that whatever happens to the head of the family, you might say, trickles down to the rest of the family members. So that if the head of the family receives circumcision, as is explained to us in Genesis 17, the whole household receives the sign of circumcision. And we see this in the Old Testament. This is the household principle. And again, the Baptists and the Reformed have no disagreement here. We understand that in the Old Covenant, that was the principle. The family is seen as a unit. That's why in God's covenant with, with, uh, with Abraham and with Moses, God gave that command, right, that the children were to be, or the infant males at least, were to be circumcised. And God said the same thing to Abraham. This will be my covenant in your flesh. In other words, signified or shown, displayed as it were, in your flesh. That's the household principle. So when Peter says, this promise is for you and for your children, we as Reformed people hear a formula there. A formula. Now, what do I mean here by formula? 
Well, a, a formula is a way of speaking that means something in a certain context. A way of speaking that means something in a certain context. Think of this a minute. If I said to you, I'm going to the bank to deposit a check, everyone here understands what that means. Everyone understands what that means. And yet, just taking the words strictly as they are, it could very well be understood to mean that I'm going to go to the bank of a river, dig a hole, and put a check in the hole and put the dirt in after it. Now, that's ridiculous, of course, right? But that's because you understand the formula. But if somebody else came here who didn't understand bank, deposit, check, right? And say he, uh, you know, looked up those words in the dictionary, he could very well come to the conclusion that you're going to go to a river and dig a little hole and deposit your check there. But we understand the formula. And so nobody misunderstands that you know you're going to go to a financial institution and make a deposit of money there. The five points of Calvinism. My friends, you can read Calvin from front to back, top to bottom. You'll never find anywhere Calvin saying, these are the five points of my teaching. And yet, as we read Calvin, we have distilled out of Calvin these five points, right? And so we understand the formula. When I say the five points of Calvinism, right? You all understand what those mean. You can, I hope you can, you can repeat them probably, right? You probably had to memorize them at some point. But it's a formula, isn't it? And somebody who was not part of this context here would say the five points of Calvinism. I'm going to go get Calvin's Institutes and read about those. And you'll look and you'll look and you'll look and you'll never find it. There is no chapter in the Institutes that says, here are the five points. Again, it's a formula, isn't it? So now to come back, when Peter is saying, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, for the promises for you and your children. Is that a formula? In other words, is that a particular way of speaking that means something in a given context? And of course, I'm going to argue that it certainly is a specific kind of meaning. It means a specific thing in a given context. Now, I gave you these verses. And I'd like to read, actually, every one of these verses. I know this may be a bit tedious, but I think it's important that we see this in the Scripture. In Genesis 9 and verse 9, if you take your Bible and turn there, Genesis 9 and verse 9. <clears throat> this is the covenant that God made with Noah. So again, the context here, right, is a covenant-making ceremony. God is making a covenant with his people. Now, in this case, it happens to be Noah. And in Genesis 9 and verse 9, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So there you see what I would call that formula, right? You and your children. Now if you turn to Genesis 17 and verse 7, and again, I just point out we're still in the context of covenant making. This time the covenant is with Abraham. In Genesis 17 and verse 7, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant. Now, if we turn to the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers and chapter 18. 
in Numbers chapter 18 and verse 19. God is speaking here to Aaron. Then the Lord said to Aaron, so Numbers 18 and verse 19, All the offerings of the holy gifts which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you. Again, I I want you to see that formula. That's a way of speaking that in the Jewish mind immediately brought their attention to this household principle. That the covenant was made with the head of the family and the whole household, the whole family is lumped together as a single unit. Then if you continue in Numbers and turn to chapter 25 and verse 13, 25 and verse 13, This is God making a covenant with Phinehas. This is just after Phinehas had uh, killed the worshipers of Baal. And God blesses him for his zeal. And in chapter 25 and verse 13, And it shall be for him, that is Phinehas, and his descendants after him, a covenant of a perpetual priesthood. The other verses that I wanted to look with you at are given there. Uh, I I put them on the outline in Deuteronomy 29. Again, if you're a note taker, just take your pen and underline these words. Now not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. Now there you don't see the exact words, do you? And your children. But yet the idea, that concept is the same, isn't it? That God makes this covenant not just with the individual But even with those members of that family who are not present at the speaking when God spoke this with them. And in Isaiah 59, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now on, or from now and forever. Again, you see the inclusion of the offspring. Now again, this is not so terribly controversial uh, with other believers, but my friends, I want to establish in your mind how rooted in the mind of a Jewish person was this idea that the infant children and all the children, all the members of the family, were included in God's covenant making with the head of that family. Now, the most graphic is what we read together from Ezekiel 16. What a picture that is, my friends, that God pictures the people of Israel as a baby that had been born and abandoned by its mother. And as that baby wallows in its blood, a a loathsome thing, right, that that, that would have been uh, disgusting in many respects. You can imagine the blood and the dirt that would have clung to this child. And yet God in his grace and mercy comes and he speaks to that child. He says, live. And he adopts that child. He takes that child into his family. He washes that child. He clothes it with the most beautiful clothing, the most beautiful jewelry. And as the child grows older and comes to the age of adulthood, that child becomes a prostitute. Again, the the, the glaring ingratitude of this child that had received such favors from God 
and then to turn her back on her father, as it were, and to go her own way. And when we read in these verses, I want you to pay careful attention to the pronoun my. Ezekiel 16, verse 17. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold. And notice in our translation, the my is capitalized. And of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images. My friends, I hope the, 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 the startling nature of that hits you in the face. You took my gold, the jewelry that I adorned you with, and you made an idol out of it. You committed spiritual adultery with an idol, and you used my gold to do it. Again, I hope you feel the, something of the, of the awful disconnect Verse 18, then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. Verse 19, also my bread, which I gave you. And then verse 20, the most awful of all, isn't it? Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me. Now again, the analogy here breaks down a little bit, right? In terms of that uh, uh, Israel had had children. The analogy is not meant to be pressed in every way. How did that work? Well, whose children were they, right? Those questions aren't so important right now. The, the, for the analogy to work here, you have to think of these children that God had blessed this woman with. And now God says, you took your sons and daughters whom you had born to me. In other words, those are my children. They belong to me. You sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. And then this, this agonizing question. Were your harlotries, your prostitution, so small a matter? Is that just a trifle to you? And then in verse 21, you slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols. Why does God say they are my children? Well, they are God's children, my friends, because they were born into a covenant family. They were born to a man, to a woman, who were in covenant with God. And the household principle indicates to us then that that whole family then is in covenant with God. That's the household principle. And I trust I've made that clear to you from the Old Testament practice of the Jewish religion. And so, my friends, when we come back to the Pentecost, when we come back to Jerusalem and we sit at Peter's feet and when we hear him preaching and when we hear him saying, When we hear him saying, the promise is for you and for your children. How are we to understand that? Well, my friends, again, it's not just that those children who were hearing Peter were being told that if you repent, your sins too will be forgiven. No, on the contrary, what Peter is saying is that this new covenant, which God has just inaugurated in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and which now has been poured out upon us in the person of the Holy Spirit, that new covenant contains a promise. And it is for you and your children. Now, my friends, none of those Jewish people would have missed the significance of that expression. We miss it because we're not in that context. We were not born in the Jewish religion. And that's why, my friends, I want to make that context doubly clear to you this evening. That when Peter says, for you and your children, how would those Jewish people have understood Peter? Not how do we understand it in our day, 
But how would they have understood it? Would they have heard a formula? Would they have heard Peter saying, Ah, the practice that we were used to, that we were accustomed to under the Old Covenant, it continues on now into the New Covenant. That there is that line of continuity between the Old Covenant, what took place under Moses, and even the Older Covenant, what took place under Abraham. And that practice continues on now under the New Covenant. Would they, how could they have heard that any differently, my friends? I ask you again, I, 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 uh, you know, in our discussions with people about these things, I think that we have, to, we have to stand on what Scripture says. And don't forget, my friends, that Scripture doesn't begin with Matthew 1. Scripture doesn't start at Matthew 1. It starts, there's a whole history. In fact, you know, if, you take, if you take the timeline of the New Testament, you have what, maybe a hundred years? And you put that next to the Old Testament, the thousands, the millennia of the Old Testament, right? Where these people had been trained from their youngest days that the covenant is for you and your children. And now Peter stands up and he repeats this household principle. Now again, the Baptists want to argue, well, this is a new covenant. And under the new covenant, the household principle is done away with. Now, only those people who believe in Christ and give credible evidence of that are to receive baptism. But my friends, again, I simply submit to you this evening. How would the Jewish people have heard the promise is for you and your children? That is the question that you have to confront. If you struggle with this Baptist idea, right, that only believers who give a credible evidence of faith can be baptized. I ask you to understand, how would the Jewish people to whom Peter is preaching have heard that expression? To you and to your children. Now, the new covenant is new. How is it new? Why do we call it a new covenant? Well, there are certain things that have changed. For instance, the sign in the Old Testament was circumcision. The sign in the New Testament is baptism. There's no question about that. We have clear scripture. Paul says circumcision and uncircumcision is nothing. In other words, it, it, it is of no religious significance any longer. Jesus said, go ye into all nations, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. It does seem that baptism is the sign of the covenant under the new covenant era. But based on these words of Peter, and by the way, many other indications in Scripture, right, that this household principle, the practice of this household principle, does not stop. In fact, my friends, think about that a minute. If the practice of the household principle, if that principle of, of seeing the whole family as a unit, what would it take for us to realize that that principle was over and God no longer intended for us to follow it? Well, let me ask you a related question. Why do we not circumcise our infant males anymore? And I mean in a religious significance. Why don't we do that? Why, why do we not have an infant circumcision ceremony anymore? Well, it's very clear, isn't it? Because the Bible clearly says, that's done. That stops. Well then, how do we know that the household principle has stopped as well? And this is a question that I think you should address. Respectfully, of course, tactfully, to your friends who challenge you on this. 
How do you know that that household principle has stopped? What scripture teaches us that God no longer intends for us to include our children in the covenant making that we do as families? And that when we believe in Christ, our children are to be lumped together with us and are also to receive the sign of God's covenant grace. What scripture indicates to you that that practice has ceased? And you better have one. You better have a good one. You better have a very, again, I take you back to circumcision. We have explicit, repeated scriptures teaching us that circumcision is nothing anymore. Well, if you're going to stop giving the covenant sign based on this household principle, then I think it's only right that as people who believe in scripture and who hold to sola scriptura, that the scriptures are only guide, not our only guide, are our, 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 the only infallible guide to faith and practice, right? Then you better have explicit scripture that says, stop giving the covenant sign to the whole family. And in the absence of that, we in the Reformed churches have continued to practice it. Are there many questions about it? Is there much discussion about it? Yes. No question. I think even in our own denomination, you would find different explanations, different points of emphasis on baptism and what it means and what it's based on and why we do it. But one thing we dare not do, and that is stop the household principle. Stop acting on the basis of the household principle. That's the significance, my friends, of these little words. Far from being a throwaway line. This is a, a line of great, of massive significance. It's teaching us the character of the new covenant. Yes, the covenant is new, but this particular point of it is not new. This is a point of continuity with the previous covenant dispensations. Well, I move then to my application. The status of children in the first place. Well, children, this is, this is of huge significance for you, isn't it? It's of massive significance for you this, this evening. Because God calls you my children. That means that God lays a claim on you. You don't have a right to yourself. God lays a claim on you. In fact, God, you might say, burned his name over you. Right? That's why when you stood here, when your parents stood here and offered you up for baptism, this why, by the way, applies even if you were baptized as an adult. If you stood here and you were baptized, the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of Christ was etched on you in the same way that we would put our name in a book or on a tool. You belong to God. He has a claim on you. He has a claim on you different than the children in the world who, are not, who have not received that covenant sign and who were not born into the ranks of covenant people. That's a serious thing. That's a serious thing to think about. That's why this, this whole discussion that we have, you know, this, is, this isn't just an argument that we have with Baptist folks, right? This is a serious thing, my friends, with serious ramifications for families and for children and for parents amongst us. That God lays a claim on these children, on your children, 
Look at them this evening, my friends. See them as God's children. You know, if I asked you to babysit my children for an evening, right, you would recognize that those are my children, right? And I, I suspect you would be quite concerned, right, to take care of them and to return them, right, to me in, in a good, good condition. Think about that, my friends. When you wake up on Monday morning and God's children come to the breakfast table with you, what a staggering thing to think about. Now, I want to speak then to the children. And I want to use the words I gave you. I know these are kind of long quotes, but believe me, I cut a lot out. The, uh, the, this is Wilhelmus Brockel, an old Dutch theologian. And he speaks in such a, such a touching way to children. In the first place, he speaks to children who are walking with God and who have taken seriously the covenant into which they were born and have taken hold of that covenant. And he speaks to them these wonderful words. He says in this first quote, read this with me, please. Strive to be exercised in this, that is in your baptism, and it will greatly strengthen you that without your knowledge, you have already been sealed in your infancy. Yield not to unbelief by being tossed to and fro, continually asking yourself, am I regenerated? Am I already a believer? And is baptism indeed a seal to me? How this will injure you and rob you of the efficacy or the power of baptism. You are indeed conscious that sins, even the sins of your heart, are a bitter grief and a heavy burden to you. You know indeed that your heart yearns for and desires reconciliation with God, for the blood of Christ unto reconciliation, and to be continually in the presence of God and to live in his fear. You know that for this reason you make Christ your choice time and again. Receive him and surrender yourself to him so that he may work all things in you by his spirit. It is also your objective not to sin, but rather to live a life pleasing unto the Lord. You know that it is truthfully so. This is now an evidence of grace. And thus also that baptism is to you a seal of the covenant. Therefore, apply this to yourself and rejoice. Well, young people, I'm speaking to you then this evening and to children. And I'd like you to look at that and to read that and to think of the amazing comfort that exists for you every time you sit here and you see a baptism take place because it brings to mind your own baptism where God says that that, that earnest desire that you have to live for God, to walk with him, to keep his commandments, for that repentance that you exercise when you sin, all of that is the character of a Christian. And God seals that promise to you. It's as if you receive a letter from him in your baptism. A letter from God. And it's not just a letter from God, but it's stamped with a divine seal. It's stamped with a divine seal, and it cannot be broken. And that is meant to be a comfort for you, a rock that you can stand upon. That in all your life, and all the... And all the confusion, we talked about some of that this morning, didn't we? Being tossed to and fro, growing up, and all the questions that can arise in your minds. You have a rock of comfort for you here in your baptism. That God himself seals to you this promise. He seals to you that he will indeed care for you. That he will never lose you. Nothing can snatch them from my hand. Now that's a wonderful blessing, isn't it? A wonderful strength that God gives to your faith. 
to stand strong, even in times when you're tempted to waver. But my friends, the covenant of God cuts both ways, doesn't it? So Brockle goes on. It'd be lovely if you could find these quotes in volume two of Brockle's uh, uh, reasonable service and read the whole thing. But he makes this striking comment also to those who are, who are not walking with God, who have not taken seriously the covenant that God has made with them. And he speaks this way in that second paragraph, you were esteemed to be a true child of the covenant as long as you did not manifest the contrary. Now you manifest the contrary, however. And thus I must say you have neither part nor lot in Christ, nor in all the promises of the covenant of grace. Must you besides cause the congregation to be slandered and Christ to be held in contempt? Choose one of the two, either live a godly life and walk worthy of the gospel, or if not, come again before the pulpit and publicly recant your baptism before the congregation, declaring that you are displeased with the fact that your parents had you baptized. Then depart and live as ungodly as you will, for then you will no longer be a disgrace to the church. Well, those are strong words, aren't they? <clears throat> but they're true words, my friends. They're true words. That the covenant cuts both ways. The covenant is a blessing and a seal to the godly, to the believing, to the repentant. But to the unrepentant and to those who have no use for these things and see no beauty in the gospel, no beauty in the Savior, the covenant speaks judgment to you. You remember what Jesus said. He said it'll be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the Jews who had received all the privileges of being God's covenant people. What an awful thing it will be, my friends, to have been born into the covenant of grace and to stand before God's judgment seat one day unconverted, unbelieving. A brief word, my friends, to the parents. What have you done with God's children? What have you done with God's children? We often talk in our day about being a provider. And I think as men especially, right, we think about that, being a provider for our families. What does that mean, being a provider? Does that mean that they have the, the, uh, the best equipment, best education, a new car, college education? Many of those things may be important, whatever, uh, in their place. But my friends, what about being a provider in the sense that taking our children aside, and pointing to their baptized foreheads, pointing them to the covenant that God had made with them and speaking to them as Brockle does here, and reminding them of the glorious blessing and privilege that baptism is for them, sealing to them God's promise of saving grace, but also sealing to them God's promise of a harsher judgment should they choose to go away from that covenant, to dismiss it and to walk away from it. I would submit to you, my friends, that that's being a provider. That's recognizing that my children are God's children. I remember a story that an elder told me one time. He said one time, actually it was his, uh, his daughter who told me this about her father, who was an elder in the church. And one day during the week, he had some business in the church. So he came in the door, and uh, he had to walk through the sanctuary to get to the office, I think it was, wherever he was going. And uh, his daughter was, was 
living very much in a, a, a life of breaking God's covenant, of, of dismissing it. And he was distressed by this. His child was, was living in sin. And as he came in the church, and as he walked through the sanctuary, he looked and he saw that baptismal font there. And he had to stop. And weeping, he placed his hand on that font. He placed his hand on that baptismal water there. And he cried out to God. Lord, remember my daughter. She also was born into your covenant. My friends, that's the, another of the blessed privileges of baptism. That it gives us a prayer to pray for children who have abandoned God's covenant. For covenant-breaking children who we may have written off. But you still have a ground here to place your hand upon this baptism. And say, Lord, would you remember my child? My child who has gone off into sin. My child who has forgotten the blood of the covenant by which he was, or she was sealed. And who's trampled upon it. But God is still a sovereign God, my friends. And he still remembers his covenant. No, I can't guarantee that God will save a backwards child. But I say this, my friends, it gives us a ground to plead. This baptism, my friends, gives us a pointer to God's covenant of grace and his covenant mercies. That also our children are not out of the reach of our sovereign God. And that he can still find them. And he can call them out of darkness. And he can bring them back into his light. And so, parents, I call you this evening to remember your baptized children. And to treat them, to raise them as God's children. My children. So that there's never cause for God to say to us, you slaughtered my children. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are aware as parents, Lord, at a time like this, of how awfully deficient our parenting has been. How many times, Lord, we neglected our children. How many times we failed to speak to them. How many times, Lord, we did not discipline them in the love that the covenant of grace would call for. Lord, we do pray that you would bless us then this evening to reflect upon this. To also have the kind of repentance that Peter was calling for. And to pray earnestly, Lord, that you would forgive our sins also in this regard. And we come, Lord, and we lay our hand upon our children. We offer them up to you, Lord, with this prayer. Lord, these are your children. Even those children, Lord, that are living in sin and have walked far from you. Lord, they are still your children. They still bear your name is printed upon them. And we cry out to you, Lord, that you would yet come in your mercy and speak to them. And that you would call them out of darkness and that you would bring them back with weeping and with supplication if need be. But that you would bring them back, Lord, that they also would come and stand before this church or any church and declare that they will be the Lord's. Lord, we pray for those young people in our midst this evening, for the children who are walking with you and who with many backslidings, Lord, and with many failings, no doubt, and yet, Lord, they are determined and resolved to walk hand in hand with you throughout this life. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen their faith that you would give them to grow and to mature in their understanding.
that they would not be racked with questions and tortured by doubts and anxieties, but that they would step out boldly, naming the name of Christ and going forward to do your will, to follow you, to lay hold of this covenant, Lord, and to find in it a rock of comfort for them. I pray, Lord, that you would bless our children then and give us the great joy as parents of seeing our children walking with you in a life of faith and obedience. Lord, we commit ourselves and our children into your hands and pray that the blessed promise that we have heard of in these last two weeks for us and our children, Lord, that we would reach hold and take hold of it for the first time, perhaps, but certainly by renewal and that we would be saved, that we would know the forgiveness of our sins and that we would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And all this we ask in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> Let's turn in the blue hymnal now to number 270. 270. Bless the man who fears Jehovah, walking ever in his ways. By thy toil thou shalt be prospered, and be happy all thy days. We'll sing all the verses of 270 in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.